right. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the promise that we just sang that you will hold us fast. Um, think of your words in the Gospel of John where you say, my sheep hear my voice. Lord, that uh, no one can snatch your sheep out of your hands. Lord, I thank you that we are held by you, even when all around us seems to be shaking in the world, in our own personal lives, that you are unshakable, that you are a rock that we can build our whole life on, and that you will raise us from the grave one day when this life is over. Lord, we just come to you right now, and we ask that your resurrection power would rest upon us, that by your Spirit our ears would be open to your word. And we will hear what you have to say to us today from the book of Acts. In Jesus' name, I ask, amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, or if you want in the Bible next to you, or underneath your, the chair in front of you, um, turn to Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. <coughs> we are going to be in chapter 4 this morning. The first 22 um, verses of chapter 4. Now, this story is kind of the continuation of the one we looked at last week. So last week, Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer, and they, they, they miraculously healed a lame man by the power of Jesus. Um, Jesus' name, Jesus' power healed this guy. And so this is the aftermath of that. What happens after? This is the first arrest story in the book of Acts. The first time the apostles get arrested. The first of many times. They spend a lot of time in jail or under arrest. Now, one huge theme in the book of Acts that we have through <coughs> is how bound and determined that the current leadership of the nation of Israel is to stamp out this early Jesus movement. And so what we're going to see in Acts, and in this story today, is that the nation of Israel has a terrible leadership problem. And what do you do to bad leaders who won't change? Even, they won't change even when their policies are clearly shown to be in the wrong. What should we do? Well, we, we try to vote them out. You, you replace them in our nation. Well... What we're going to see the beginning of here in the book of Acts is that Israel's leaders, the ones who killed Jesus, their king, their true king, they murdered him and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be released to them. This is the leadership of the nation. And they're beginning to be replaced by 12 leaders representing a new 12 tribe movement under their king. Jesus. This is the new restoration of Israel starting. And it will be complete, as Peter said in his sermon, chapter 3, uh, it will be complete when Jesus returns to restore all things. This new restoration movement is being led by the apostles, and they, in this story, are very quickly emerging as the real new leaders 
of the nation of Israel. In the Bible, um, leaders are often called shepherds in the Old Testament. The word pastor is the word shepherd in the New Testament. Israel's leaders are their shepherds. And the prophets of Israel, um, prophets like Jeremiah, prophets like Ezekiel or Zechariah, regularly talked about how bad the shepherds of Israel were. They need new shepherds. So this replacing of the current leadership of Israel um, is, is predicted in the Old Testament. Long before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah said, in Jeremiah 3.15, that in the days when God is going to restore his people, he will give them new shepherds to replace the bad shepherds. They will be, and he says the word, shepherds after my own heart. Does anybody remember what God said about King David years ago before that? He was a man after God's own heart. So these are going to be shepherds who do what David did, chase after God's heart. They're, they're after God's heart. Their heart reflects God's heart for his people. They're good shepherds. The prophet Zechariah says the same thing. Zechariah chapter 10, <coughs> verses 2 to 6. I'll read this. Zechariah says, The people of Israel, they wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. They don't have a shepherd. Wait, they do. The next verse says, My anger, the Lord says, burns against the shepherds. The shepherds are so bad, it's like they don't have any. And I will punish the leaders for Yahweh Almighty. This is, this is what God says. I'm going to punish the leaders you do have for Yahweh Almighty. The Lord Almighty will care for his flock. God's going to be a shepherd. The people of Judah. And he'll make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone. Ooh, we're going to hear that language in our story today. I will strengthen Judah, says the Lord, and I'll save the tribes of Joseph. That's a way of saying Israel. I'll restore them. Hear the restoration language? That's big in the book of Acts. Israel's broken, needs fixing. And here God says, I'm going to restore them, and I'm going to have compassion on them. They'll be as though I had not rejected them, for I am Yahweh their God, and I will answer them. So we could preach a whole sermon on Zechariah. We're not going to do that. But here God is upset with the, the shepherds of Israel. They're basically like not shepherding the people. Um, Ezekiel the prophet says the same thing Ezekiel 34 the shepherds are feeding themselves they're getting fat on what the sheep should be eating right that's the image um, it's like the shepherds put the food in the sheep trough to feed the sheep and then they just eat the feed and the sheep starve and God says I'm going to shepherd them and then he says I'm going to restore them through a cornerstone from Judah. The cornerstone from Judah will be the shepherd. Well, who's the king of Judah? Jesus, ultimately. And he's called the cornerstone here, and we'll see that in our passage today. So, listen now as we read these verses from Acts 4, 1-22. Israel has a leadership problem. We're going to see it in full display here. Bad shepherds. You're a sheep. You want a good shepherd. And we're going to see who these good shepherds are that 
God is giving the people through Jesus. The priest, Acts 4, verse 1. Now I'm going to pause as we go and make some comments, and then we'll circle back around and talk through this again. So, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So remember what just happened? They healed the lame man in the temple in chapter 3, and they're using this as an opportunity. Now they've got all these crowds that are watching this guy. I nicknamed him Jumpy, right? He's just jumping and jumping and jumping on these brand new legs, and everybody's watching, and it's an opportunity for Peter to preach. And the leaders of Israel, verse 2, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people Proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Remember, these Jewish leaders are the same guys who recently put Jesus to death. Now they're hearing them preach about resurrection in the name of this dead Jesus, who's supposedly not dead. They, verse 3, seized Peter and John, because, and because it was evening, they put them in jail till the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, do you remember after Peter's first sermon back in chapter 2? Um, how many people believed back then? Do you remember? A few days before? Not five. 2,000. Not two. Three. 3,000, Three. Three yeah. Good. 3,000. Now the number has swelled to 5,000 men. Some Bible commentators think, well, that just includes men, women, and children. But it's possible they're just counting how heads of households here. I think that's more likely. Heads of households just be like um, the last name gets the, you know, is usually the dad's name, right? So the, the Aubrey household under Joel Aubrey. And so 5,000 men, and who knows? I mean, this could be 20,000, 30,000 people. We really don't know. It's a huge movement. That's the point. Verse 5. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law, they met in Jerusalem. Now listen, he, he gives all these names here. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest, priest family. Why all these names mentioned? Well, Luke is trying to make clear that these are all the same names and all the same people and all the same characters, villains really, who murdered their king, Jesus. And ask that a murderer be released to them, Barabbas. So all the same people that killed Jesus are now about to put these guys on trial. How do you think this trial is going to go? <laughs> Not good. So they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? They asked Jesus similar things. Flipping over tables in the temple and be like, uh... Who made you able to do this? Right? And Jesus is, um, you know, disciples are giving them the same, they're giving them the same question. What's the name? What's the power? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now I want you to pause a second. Peter has already been filled by the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. So here's he, he's filled again. It seems clear throughout the book of Acts, we'll see this show up later in chapter 4, that Christians can have the Spirit of Jesus at work in their life, and yet receive a fresh filling of the Spirit, as the Spirit empowers them to do specific things on behalf of Jesus. Speak, 
teach, act in the service of Jesus. Then Carl, filled with the Spirit, felt sense, an urge to pray for one of his patients and did. And God answered that prayer. Or then, you know, this mom, filled with the Holy Spirit, felt the urge to speak to her child and it was a really good conversation. You know, the, the Spirit filling for specific things. And here, the Spirit is filling Peter, enabling him to preach powerfully. Rulers and elders of the people, he says. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame. Listen how he sets this up. We're being called to account today for being kind. That's why we're on trial. You put us in jail for being kind. <laughs> and if we're being asked for how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, which is true, but whom God raised from the dead, which they debated, that this man stands before you healed. And the power and boldness of these words is remarkable. Guys, he says, you are calling us to account here for an act of kindness to a lame man. Well, okay, know this. We healed him in the name of Jesus. You remember him? You killed him. You remember that? But God raised him from the dead. And you didn't have an explanation for that, Sanhedrin. Instead, we were talking about this earlier, you paid off the guards to lie about it. And say, well, his disciples came and robbed him, you know, stole him away in the night. That's a real good look for the soldiers. While you were what? Gambling? Sleeping? No, passed out, because the angels knocked you out. And Jesus rose. Then Peter is going to go on in this sermon to give a commentary to who Jesus is. He's on trial, but he's preaching. Jesus is, he says, the stone you builders rejected which has become the cornerstone. Here, Peter is quoting one of the key Old Testament passages about this coming Messiah, this King of Israel, and his rejection. This comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus has been rejected by the leaders of the nation like a stone that people building a great temple reject and throw it out as worthless. Ah, it's defective. We can't use that stone. Kind of like if we were building, when we were building this building and we found a board that was all twisted and knotted, so we can't use this. Reject it. Well, the cornerstone has been rejected. This stone has been rejected, but now it's become the cornerstone of a new temple. And Peter says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus brings salvation. Now look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, just regular fishermen, Right, with no formal Bible training, no degrees on their the walls of their houses. They didn't even have houses, many of them. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was really nothing they could say. I mean, what could they say? You didn't really heal him? 
He seems, just seems to be walking, but he's not really. There's nothing they can say. Remember, this guy had been at the temple daily. He was a permanent fixture to the temple gate beautiful, you know? He's there every day. His friends bring him there. They know his name probably. They've probably walked past him a hundred times and not given him money. Maybe a few times they did to feel good about themselves. So they know this guy. He's not a walker and now he's jumping. So what are they going to do? They order the apostles to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. Go out. We need to have a, a huddle. <laughs> Team huddle here. What do we do? Verse 16, what do we do with these men? The leaders of Israel are stumped. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. They can't even deny a real miracle has taken place. See, even seeing miracles, dead people rise, lame people walk, does not mean that somebody was going to follow Jesus. They killed Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was the final clincher. He raised a dead man who'd been dead for four days. Now, and, and Jesus did this one. A lot of his miracles he kept secret. He wasn't ready to die yet. He needed to fulfill all things. But then when he was good and ready, and Passover was about to be there, he raises his dead friend Lazarus, and the Jewish leaders say, yeah, we have killed him now. And he did it very publicly, in front of a huge crowd, not secretly in a room like he did with the little girl, Talitha. Get up. No. Jesus' public proclamation was right at the point where he is ready to go to the cross. He's totally in control of all of it. But even seeing miracles like this lame man, their hearts are so hard, they will not change. So verse 17, they say, we've got to stop it. Not believe it. We have to stop it. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. We must warn these guys not to speak any longer in this name. They can't even bring themselves to say the name of Jesus. We can't let this spread. Uh, too late, guys. It is spreading. So they called the men again. Huddles over. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But... Verse 19, Peter and John replied, listen to this answer, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you, the leaders of Israel, who could kill us, or to him? You be the judges. Ironically, that's what they're doing right now. They're judging. You judge, guys. You are the judges of Israel. You be the judges. Yeah, we are the judges. Should we obey God or obey you? As for us, verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. He'd been lame for over 40 years. It's a long time to not walk. We talked about this last week. His legs would have been shriveled, white, no muscles. Lots of people knew him. It wasn't a miracle they could hush. They're in a real pickle if they want to stop this Christian movement from gaining steam. 
You can't just punish miracle workers, can you? They tried that with Jesus, and it obviously didn't work. This is Jesus 2.0 now. Here's his followers, and they're on fire. What do we do? We thought we'd squelch the Jesus movement. And now we're really in trouble because they say he's alive. We can't kill him again. He's gone. We, what are they going to do? So we'll see that they threaten and release for now. So now we've worked our way through the passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back and just want to hone in on three things. First, we'll just look more closely at the dilemma of the religious leaders. Second, the devotion of the disciples who attend with Jesus. And third, their decision. So the dilemma. The old leaders of Israel are in a bind. In Acts 4 and in Acts chapter 5, we'll see they're really facing a challenge. Even though any Jewish person could go and worship God at the temple of Israel, the temple was their turf. Okay? It was their domain, the Sanhedrin. They oversaw what happened there. They made sure that the worship going on there was carried out in a way that they felt honored God. Of course, Jesus had something to say about that, right? They made it into a marketplace. But they were in charge of it all, including how they made money there. It was a big business. They were in charge of all the teaching that happened at the temple. Right? People that organize a, a conference, it's the organizers who decide who's going to be the conference speakers, right? You can't just walk into a conference of 5,000 people and be like, yeah, I'm the speaker. Who decided? Me. That would not make the conference speakers happy. If you got up under the spotlights, uninvited, unannounced, not on the program. Like, you got your program. Carl goes to a medical conference. He gets his program for the day. And some guy who has no schooling, no education, shows up at the medical conference in front of all the big wig doctors and gives a talk. And crowds from the street come rushing in to hear. Like, that's kind of along the lines of what's going on here. These are the religious elites of the nation. These fishermen come into their house, their temple, their source of money, the place that employs them. And thousands and thousands of people are rushing to listen to them. That's a tough pill to swallow. I mean, I do feel a little bad for these guys. Some little bit, even though their hearts are super hard. And what was even more challenging is that what these fishermen were preaching was that resurrection was in Jesus. Verse 2. They're preaching in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And even though the Pharisees believed in resurrection, the Sadducees, who were the, um, the, the, the priesthood, were all mostly Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. And they were the ones who were mostly in charge of the temple. The Pharisees were more the radicals, those guys who believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not like the idea of resurrection. It was dangerous to let a resurrection movement get too carried away. In fact, 
over the past few hundred years of Israelite history leading it up to that point, it was very clear to the Sadducees that it was people who believed in resurrection and who didn't have any fear of death that made the, the most zealous, dangerous revolutionaries. What are you going to do? Kill me, Rome? I'll rise again. You take away the fear of death through the promise and hope of resurrection and you have a very dangerous population. And the Pharisees, they were okay with that because they believed that was what Daniel and the Bible taught. But the Sadducees, don't teach resurrection. That'll get people, that'll get our nation destroyed. That's dangerous to teach resurrection. And here they are teaching resurrection in the name of someone that the Pharisees and Sadducees had decided to kill. Jesus. This was bad for them. And not only was the teaching bad, but the miracle that they had done on their turf, in the temple, was very a very big risk to these folks. This miracle was on the level of something that Jesus or Moses himself would have done. A lame man is jumping and walking and praising God. There's no way they feel like at this moment that they can beat the apostles up, lock them up, or kill them. They're not that desperate yet. They're going to change tactics. We're going to see... Desperation leads them to do terrible things in the pages ahead in Acts. But here, killing them would not gain them any popularity points with the people. And so, um, what they do, um, we'll, look, we'll look at that in a minute again, their decision to basically hope it goes away. But let's look at the devotion now to Jesus that marks the apostles. The new leaders of Israel, the apostles, are devoted to their king, to God alone. We're going to look at three things that mark these followers of Jesus. You can write these down if you want. Three things that marks their devotion. They're spirit-filled, and they're filled with courage, and they obey God rather than men. Spirit-filled, filled with courage and boldness, and they obey God more than men. So verse 8, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit as he begins to speak to his accusers. I want you to think about this. This, is, this would have been a bit of an intimidating trial. These are guys that could kill you. They killed Peter's king already, even though God raised him. The Jewish Sanhedrin, it's a very large group of men, about 70 total. They would sit in a half circle around the accused. So imagine 70 men, the leaders of Israel, powerful, wealthy men who aren't above using lies to get you killed either. We'll see that with Stephen. They make they can call in false witnesses. They can kill people and so or get you get the Romans to kill you. And so as Peter is bracing himself to speak and answer the question about what power or name they're doing their healing and teaching in the Spirit Himself. The Spirit of Jesus comes with power and helps Him speak. And speak courageously. Peter's given this courage to speak with boldness. And the Sanhedrin is startled. Look at verse 13. There, they remembered that these unschooled fishermen, look at what they remember in verse 13. I love this. These men had been 
with Jesus. What makes these men significant is that they've been with the king of the Jews. They've been with Jesus. Being with Jesus had a forever effect on these men. Their courage is not rooted in their own strength or ability or speaking skills or the power of their dynamic personalities. No. It's in the spirit of the Jesus who's with them and the Jesus they walked with for three years. So they command them not to teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And the apostles say, you judge for yourselves. Should we listen to you or to God? We're going to listen to God, they say, because we can't help but speak the things we have seen and heard. Devotion to God no matter what marks these guys. And so now look at the decision of the leaders. This is the third main piece to this section of Acts. The decision is for them, they threaten and release. Yeah, they, they can't pretend the miracle didn't happen because all the people are going wild about it. At this point, they don't feel like they can show up and say, listen, the devil did it. Everybody settle down. The devil did it. Now what's the devil doing in the temple, guys? <laughs> how'd, you, how'd you let him in the temple? That's not a good look. I thought this is God's house. Now nah, they can't, they tried that one with Jesus, and that didn't work with Jesus either. Okay? They tried, oh, Jesus is doing all this magic stuff with the devil's powers. Eh. That's not ultimately what they charged him with when they killed him. No, they charged him with blasphemy, claiming to be God, and with threatening to destroy the temple, which Jesus does in AD 70. Religions of Rome. But for now, let's focus on their decision here. They're, they're, they, they give a pretty limp wristed decision, hoping that the power of their words would intimidate these fishermen to go home and pretend it never happened. But that's not what happened. They say to them, right, we have to obey God, not you. And guess what? You're the guys who killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead. So, we're, we're witnesses to what God has done as a result of what you did. This is a tough pill for these guys to swallow. And we'll see the pages that follow that they don't remain inactive for long. No, in a few chapters they're going to they're gonna beat them chapter 5 and then release them. And then in chapter 6 they result to mob violence and they let Stephen be brutally stoned after letting people bear false witness about it. Yeah. So, and then a huge persecution breaks out, and the, the leader of this persecution is a young man named, anybody remember? Saul. And Saul is leading the violence against the church. So this is, this is the very beginning of this. And then, what does the risen Jesus do to Saul? My team. <laughs> 
Love it. This is a great book. Um, that's all ahead of us. Let's conclude now. The, the leaders of Israel, they did have the power to punish these apostles, but they didn't dare because the apostles had won the hearts of the people even though they were just simple fishermen. They had no political power. Silver and gold we don't have. And so they released them to do more preaching. So now that we've looked over this, I lost my place here. These guys with no advanced training, no degrees, now the people are looking to them for guidance. Let's make some application. These men, when the Pharisees look to them and say, and the Sadducees, what makes them significant? Where did they get their boldness? Look at what they say. Verse 13. Remember, they had been with Jesus. They had spent time with the Master, and He had strengthened their hearts with courage and taught them all they needed to know to preach and teach His gospel. So, the first two applications I was thinking about this week, the first one is the path to proper courage and confidence in the Christian life. You want courage in your Christian life? You want confidence? You want boldness? Spend time with the Lord Jesus. Proper confidence comes from being with Jesus. I say proper confidence because there is such a thing as improper confidence and courage. For example, imagine if I, tomorrow morning, woke up at 6 o'clock a.m., walked out of my house, strapped my tree stand to the tree in my front yard, and sat there with complete confidence that I was going to shoot the buck of a lifetime on Medway Street. Is that proper confidence? No. Why? Because it's not related, it's not grounded in truth. I might have all the confidence in the world. Wow, look at that confident fool. Okay? You gotta leave town to find the big bucks. Go to the mountains. Okay? No. Severely misguided confidence bases confidence in lies. Confidence has to be, or deception, or just foolishness. It's got to be rooted in truth. Another way of having improper confidence is putting trust in yourself. If I preached to you every Sunday and stood up here totally confident in the power of my personality or godliness to get you to listen to me, confident in the power of the words that I say to get you to listen to Jesus, then my confidence would be folly. Because your faith ought not to rest in me. I'm going to die. One day I won't be able to talk. Don't put confidence in me. But in the name of the Jesus that Peter and Paul and all the apostles preached before me. Proper confidence in Jesus starts with the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. 
It starts with knowledge. He is real. He is alive. And he's risen. And he's ascended to the heaven's throne. He's reigning. We have a king. He's not dead. He's in control. And he loves you. You want confidence? Look to that. And look and look and look and look to the risen Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. He's the only name. The disciples of Jesus, they had spent three whole years with Jesus, following Jesus, only to run from him when he was crucified. Christian confidence dies with a dead Jesus. Confidence is replaced by terror without Jesus. But when Christ was raised, the apostles are filled with his spirit, and all their time with Jesus and their confidence in the risen Christ comes back and it fuels an unshakable courage to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. So, do you want boldness and courage in your Christian life? I don't want to be a timid Christian. I want to be secure in Christ, confident in who He is and what He's done. Spend time with Christ, the risen Christ. Spend time talking with Him out loud if that helps. Go for a walk. Cry to Him. Spend time with his family, like we're doing right now. Spend time in his word. Spend time with Jesus, and your confidence in the name of Jesus will grow. And people will look at you, and they won't say, wow, Joel's an awesome guy. Carl's an awesome guy. They'll say, this man has been with Jesus. Praise the Lord Jesus. The second thing I wanted to point out here is that the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, they loved power and control. They loved the feeling of being in control, of people listening to them. And they didn't want to relinquish that leadership of Israel easily. And in fact, they don't. Ultimately, the judgment of God is going to fall on this nation just a few decades later in 8070. The temple that they loved so much the source of their power and authority will be destroyed forever. No stone left on top of another, as Jesus had said, and their rebellious rule is crushed. The temple and their leadership is forever replaced by the rule of the king of Israel and the new leaders of the 12 tribes, these 12 men. But right now, the Israelite leaders are going to do anything to keep themselves in power. Just like when they murdered Jesus, they team up with any pagan leader who give them the time of day, like Pilate, to get somebody they didn't want to be king of the Jews killed. In their minds, for the moment, right, the thing to do to stay in power is just to threaten, to wait things out, to not lose popularity points, say, test the winds and say, yeah, things are really going their way right now, and if we come in and be Debbie Downers and hurt these guys, we're going to lose power. So, to keep power, they stay silent publicly. This is really heartbreaking because it's a picture of what all of us do, I think, apart from the mercy of God. We don't like to be out of control, to feel out of control. It's not a good feeling to feel out of control, is it? It makes us insecure, fearful. And there's nothing that makes a human feel more out of control and scared than the fear that maybe, just maybe, you might be wrong about something. It's embarrassing to be wrong. Who likes to be wrong? Do you like to be wrong? 
Poll? No. I don't enjoy being wrong. It's embarrassing. It can be dangerous to be wrong. Your whole way of life could be threatened if you were wrong. If I'm wrong about Jesus, for example, right? My whole life's a waste. It's dangerous to be wrong. You could lose your circle of friends if you're wrong. If someone decides that Islam is wrong and that they ought to become a Christian, they face certain rejection by their family, by their friends, and sometimes death. Fear of being wrong often leads us then to double down on our positions no matter what, even in the face of obvious facts that stand against us. It may come off as arrogant. Man, that guy never admits he's wrong. He's proud, he's arrogant, but it can actually be driven by fear. Fear of being wrong leads us to not actually think through and engage the arguments of people who disagree with us but instead, to just shut them down, to avoid them, to demean them, to slander them behind their backs, tell lies about them, and even in extreme instances, hurt them. That's what the Jews did to the apostles, ultimately. Instead of truly listening to them, and letting the facts of a man miraculously healed, or a dead man raised from the grave, change and reshape the way that they viewed the world, the Sanhedrin decided they would try and make the truth go away. It wouldn't go away, and the apostles wouldn't show up, and so as we'll see, they are going to start to use other tactics like slander and lies and cruelty and murder to make their way, just as they've done with Jesus. And of course, they failed. I just want to close with this. I know that I personally, I've experienced fear of being wrong, about a whole host of things in my life. Believe something passionately. People who believe differently that are very smart can intimidate. We aren't saved by Jesus to go on and be so insecure about our Christian positions that we're not even willing to listen or even engage the thoughts of people that think differently than us. We're not called to an arrogant confidence that says, I'm right, and nobody can prove me wrong, no matter what. The apostles, they didn't express their confidence in Jesus this way, and I don't think we should either. What we're called to is just open our mouth and talk about what we've seen and heard, and about what Jesus has done for us. Time with Jesus had changed these guys forever. That was the root of their confidence the root of the confidence of the Sadducees and Pharisees is our traditions, our power. And when it's threatened, they react with lies, deceit, violence. That's not the source of our confidence. Our source of confidence is not in the size of our church, the size of our budget, our power, our personality. Our ability to stay in control. No. It's the empty tomb of Jesus. Then the apostles, confident in Jesus, they opened their Old Testaments. They showed what Jesus had done for them there. They reasoned with people. They listened and then reasoned. They challenged. They pointed to facts. Facts like this. You killed Jesus. 
You had a murderer released. You did this, but God raised him from the grave. This is not arrogance. It's humble truth. And so it's not arrogance to speak about what we believe to be true about Jesus with confidence and boldness. So long as we have the humility to listen to those who disagree, even as we call them to repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I ask right now that by the power of your spirit, you would give us a longing to be with Jesus in our private times in the word and prayer. To spend time with him and to stir up in our hearts a humble confidence that would give us the courage of the apostles to talk about Jesus, to live for Jesus no matter what. Help us, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.